0: What well, a privilege it is that we have a Bible that tells us what God does, who He is, His working in our lives, and so it's always our privilege. The best thing we can say on a Sunday is turn in your Bibles, and so turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to consider verses 7 and 8. We've slowed our pace down a bit in Matthew for a little bit of time to give serious consideration to what it means to pray in power. Last time I introduced the topic in verses 5 and 6, we considered that humility is the foundational support for prayer, prayer that's powerful in a biblical fashion, not powerful in in a human idea. The genuine prayer is not just unto God, but prayer is for God. It's for His honor, for His glory. So humility has to be the starting point. In the verses 7 and 8, Jesus continues his instruction on prayer. And theologically speaking, now he's going to light a stick of dynamite and throw it into the crowd to explode with truths and explode with implications, which are really beyond comprehension, beyond complete understanding. How is he going to do this? Well, he's going to address the grand paradox or puzzle of prayer, which is really a paradox from a human standpoint only. Matthew 6, verse 7, and when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This short admonition, this small exhortation is short and small like a stick of dynamite. Because if my Heavenly Father knows what I need before I ask, what's the obvious question? Why am I asking? Or another related question, does prayer change God's mind? The truth that Jesus is extolling is the sovereignty of God in prayer. If I believe that God is truly sovereign, the question is, then why am I praying? If all things work together for good, why am I praying? Well, we'll get to that. But first of all, in verse 7, Jesus begins with his admonition to not be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the pagans when they pray to their false gods. Prayer for a, a pagan who worshipped a false god was designed to manipulate a deity, to make a deity do what he wanted. It was common practice to Make up as many names as possible for a given deity, for your favorite God of the day, in hopes that you would stroke the ego and and, and gain favor with this deity. It was also common to remind the deity of everything you've done for that deity, all the sacrifices you've made, all the ways you've used its name. And then you demand answer to prayer based on the deity now owing you a favor. By the way, I should note that in the law of Moses, there are no sacrifices to gain favor from God. Did you know that? There are sacrifices for payment for sin, but never, I sacrificed, so I get rain. I sacrifice so I get blessing. Blessing comes from covenant obedience, but not from a quid pro quo kind of a deal making with God. That never happens. Jesus is making the point here that prayer is not somehow to impress God. It's not to earn merit with God. And we're about to get into Jesus' model prayer for his disciples, most popularly called the Lord's Prayer. It wasn't really meant for repetition. It wasn't meant for mindless repetition, recitation. It was a model. It was an outline. There's nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer whatsoever. But many church traditions which long ago forgot the biblical gospel still recite the Lord's Prayer in an act of mindless repetition which they believe makes God happy. But Jesus blows the doors off any attempt to please God with mindless repetition or wordiness or floweriness of prayer. There's nothing wrong with well thought out prayers. There's nothing wrong even with written prayers. I could read 150 of them to you from the book of Psalms. But Jesus is making a radical shift here for all who believe that prayers inherently curry God's favor or obligate God to pay them back for their prayers. Instead, Jesus takes the worshiper into the realm of relationship with God through Christ. That unlike the lost person seeking God's favor through some sort of impressive prayer, the regenerate, saved person is speaking to his Heavenly Father who knows what you need before you ask. And so again, if my Heavenly Father knows what I need before I ask, what's the obvious question? Then why am I asking? I think that the trite and standard answer could be that, well, God likes to be asked. He wants a relationship with you. That's why you pray. That is a piece of the answer. But that's certainly not the comprehensive answer or we could spend time on the precious truth of how loving our father is that that he enjoys hearing from us and that also is true that's very evident from jesus statement but i want us to have a deeper understanding of prayer and why are you praying if we believe so strongly in a sovereign god who has ordained all things according to the counsel of his will then why do we pray This is a rich theological question which speaks to the interaction of the sovereignty of God and whether or not prayer actually changes anything. I think our time this morning will show you, though, that the sovereignty of God is actually the very doctrine that gives you the most confidence in prayer. It gives you tremendous confidence in the Lord. Now, Scripture is very clear about the sovereignty of God. Ephesians 1.11 says that God does all things according to the counsel of His own will. He's not swayed, He's not changed, He's not influenced by any outside source. For our purposes this morning, though, I'm considering what we're doing today kind of an in-house discussion. I'm speaking to you with the understanding that you already believe from Scripture that all things according to Christ, according to God, according to the Holy Spirit, including salvation in Christ, are... All things are according to the counsel of God with himself. I'm not going to take a lot of time to try to convince you of the sovereignty of God. If you don't yet believe that God is sovereign over all things, frankly, what that's going to do is mess up your view of prayer. It's going to mess up your view of prayer. And so this morning, my goal is not to convince you of sovereignty. That's a given. But to explore the relationship between the sovereignty of God and our prayers. We believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God and we don't see this in any way as contradictory to prayer. And in fact, by the time we're done this morning, I hope to have proven to you that prayer is only valid when founded on the sovereignty of God. That's the only valid prayer. And so Jesus has lit this stick of dynamite theologically, thrown it into the crowd. Let's let it explode and let's see what comes out. I want to give you five purposes of prayer related to the sovereignty of God. We have to go beyond this text here. The five purposes of prayer related to the sovereignty of God. The first purpose is to complete God's decree. To complete God's decree. We're starting at a very high altitude in a lofty concept here. God has decreed all things according to the counsel of his own will. Logically speaking, there is nothing not included, if I can use a double negative, in that category. God has decreed all things. Anything that is outside the sovereign control of God means God is not in control of this thing, which means He's not sovereign, which means what? It means He's not God. So He's decreed all things. So the foundational question to start with concerning prayers, does, does prayer change God's purposes? Does prayer change God's mind? Does prayer affect God's decree? Does prayer affect God's overall plan? And we must Answer, absolutely no. Prayer does not change God's mind. Prayer does not change God's direction. Prayer does not change God's decree. To say that God shapes His policies and His plan by being continually altered by men's prayers literally robs God of His sovereignty. And it makes Him no different than the pagan deities to whom Jesus was referring to in verse 7. One of the greatest theologians ever to write on the sovereignty of God, R.C. Sproul, wrote about this question. He said, quote, When we're talking about God's sovereignty, do we think for a moment that if there is a conflict of interest between the will of God and my will, that my will could possibly prevail? He goes on, You cannot manipulate God. You cannot manipulate him by incantations, repetition, public utterances, or your own predictions. God is sovereign. So when you bring your request to God, he may say yes and he may say no. So why pray if God has decreed all things already? Well, the answer is this. The results of God's decree are set. And one of the means by which God's decree is completed are the prayers of the saints. Your prayers are the means. They're the agency. They're the channel through which God has ordained that his will will be accomplished. Let me give you several examples. We use Elijah as an example. Elijah, the prophet of God, declared to the wicked king Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel that God was stopping the rain for years because of the infestation of Baal worship in Israel. And so Elijah set up his famous contest between the prophets of Baal and and, and Elijah, uh, really a contest between the false god Baal and the true and living God. And you remember, the contest was to see whose god would consume a sacrifice with fire. And not only did the true and living God consume the burnt offering, the fire also consumed the wood, the stones, the dirt all around it, the water that was poured on it. The prophets of Baal were captured. They were executed for covenant treachery against God. And now that the land was purged of this evil, Elijah knew from the Lord that rain was coming. Because Elijah told Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the tumult of rain. Elijah knew from God rain was coming. That was the decree of God. That was the plan of God. That was the purpose of God. But the very next verse shows Elijah down on the ground with his face between his knees in humble prayer, specifically praying for the rain to come. He already knew it was coming, and yet he was praying and praying intently. How about the example of Jeremiah? Jeremiah 33, God tells Jeremiah how he's going to restore Israel. Jeremiah 33, 6, with health and healing, a return to abundance, a return to truth. Verse 8, cleansing of all sin. Verse 9, all the nations of the earth will tremble before Israel as the chief nation of God. God tells Jeremiah, this is what's going to happen. This is my decree. And yet in verse 3, God tells Jeremiah to do something. Call to me and I will answer you. Pray for the very things I just decreed to happen. God tells Jeremiah to pray for these things. This is similar to King David. King David knew from God's revelation that someday Jerusalem would be the capital of the world. It would be restored. It would be a city of peace, a city of joy. The the place for all who love God would come. And yet, in Psalm 122.6, King David exhorts the true believer, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How about the example of Jesus himself? Jesus made an authoritative declaration in John 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that gives us great comfort, great assurance. And yet Jesus prayed for you and for me. In John seventeen twenty four, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. He decreed it as God and yet prayed to his father that this would happen. See, prayer is not for altering God's purposes. Prayer is for accomplishing God's purposes. Another way of thinking about this is that God has caused all things to happen according to his will. That he's the primary cause. But to effect that end, he's also ordained the exact and proper and precise arrangement of secondary causes, such as prayer. Now, at this point, we're beginning to try to run up a hill that's too steep for us. The question that begins to be mysterious to us is this. If God is the cause of all things and and decreed all things, and if it seems to me that my prayers are offered freely as an act of my will, because I am praying what I want to pray, How do those two work together? How does the primary cause and secondary cause interact? Dr. R.C. Sproul wrote his answer to this question with great wisdom, with great acumen, with great insight. He said, I don't know. I don't have a clue. (laughs) We're running up a hill that's too steep for us, but it's true. And the lesson is clear. Just because we can't fully grasp something about God doesn't make it untrue. It just means it's too big for us. Let me present a different scenario though. Would you be able to worship and pray to a God whose purposes you could change? Whose plans were constantly shifting? Let's put this highly important scenario before ourselves here. Two Christian high schools and their football teams about to play one another. Both pray to win the game. If God's purposes can shift, then now it's a contest of who can pray the best. Or, let's throw another wrench in the works. Philippians 2 says that all of you should consider one another as better than yourselves. So if one team is really obedient and says, Lord, please let the other team win because we want them. So h- how do you deal with that? Now even God's confused. Now our great comfort is that we pray to a God who has decreed the end of all things. But to complete God's decree is not the only purpose of prayer. We're helped by the next purpose of prayer. The first purpose, to complete God's decree. The second purpose, to conform your wishes. To conform your wishes. Prayer is the process of yielding to God so that our prayers sweetly harmonize with His eternal purposes. That your desires, your wishes are now conformed to His such that you're praying what He wants and it's the same thing as what you want. Jesus gave this assurance in John 16, 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. In charismatic circles, the phrase, in Jesus' name, is the most abused phrase in all of the Bible. They have no clue what it means. To pray in Jesus' name is not a formula. It's not an incantation. It's not a guarantee that everything you say gets to happen. To pray in Jesus' name means to pray as his representative. To pray on his behalf. To pray what Jesus would pray. To ask what Jesus would ask for, for the glory of God. Now that takes your breath away, doesn't it? That stops you for a moment before you say, Lord, I would like such and such in Jesus' name. John said it this way in 1 John 5, beginning in verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything, what? According to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have from him. It's in prayer that we're brought into submission and conformity to God's will. Finding our desires and wishes being shaped by God's. And how does this happen? How is your will conformed to his? By knowing the will of God in Scripture. You can't know his will without the Bible. By trusting in the sovereignty of God. By never making demands that serve only yourself and not the glory of God. By happy, having the, the proper view of Christ not as some divine genie who just wants to give you stuff, but as the king of all the kings who is moving his kingdom program forward with you and with you as a tool. And the simple question is, is the prayer I'm praying a part of moving Christ's kingdom program forward? We love Psalm 37:4. Delight yourself in Yahweh and he will give you the desires of your heart. And it may be easy to get immediately excited in charismatic fashion. See, God will give me whatever I desire. Yes, but there's a requirement. Delighting in God. The verse prior defines delighting in God as trusting in Him, doing good, cultivating faithfulness and obedience. Psalm 119 is clear that delighting in God means being saturated in His Word so by trusting him, doing good, being cultivating faithfulness, obedience, being saturated in his word, God will give you the desires of your heart. And here's another twist. It's not that you have a desire and God gives them to you. It's God gives you the desire you are to have. And now his desires are your desires and you pray according to his will. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is very helpful about this. It states about prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desire unto God for things agreeable to His will. The first and perhaps most important thing that prayer does for you is to bring about internal transformation, to change you, to cause you to come into alignment with God's purposes, to change your wishes, to conform to God's decree, to cause you to want only what God wants The first purpose, to complete God's decree. The second purpose, to conform your wishes. This is the third purpose of prayer, how it relates to sovereignty. To confirm your faith. To confirm your faith. The answers to prayer that you experience in your life and the faithful believer ought to have countless examples of answered prayer. These serve as regular and daily reminders of the evidence of your faith in the Lord who regularly works in tangible ways in your life. In the providence of God, he brings changes and alterations, not to his purposes, but to your circumstances. You experience the tremendous reality that God answers prayer. You know, John Calvin, he's most famous for his understanding and his teaching on the doctrine of election, the sovereign choice of God. And he writes extensively on this in his Institutes of Christian Religion. You know, what was more important to Calvin, before he wrote on the doctrine of election, he wrote on prayer. It was important to him to write that. And in in the Institutes, he addresses in great detail the question of prayer and how prayer intersects with the sovereignty of God because he never wanted the doctrine of sovereignty, the doctrine of election, to somehow lead to the conclusion of, of fatalism or being passive when it comes to prayer. Calvin wrote this, and it's a little hard to understand, so I'll give you a, a 21st century translation. But Calvin wrote this, quote, It is very absurd, therefore, to dissuade men from prayer by pretending that divine providence, which is always watching over the government of the universe, is in vain importuned by our supplications. 21st century translation, just because God is sovereign, don't ever let that discourage in you from believing that God answers prayer. People accuse Calvinists of, of thinking that prayer is pointless. The ultimate Calvinist, Calvin, said, you pray because God answers prayer. Psalm one forty five eighteen God is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. Psalm 27.13 says that the faithful follower of God will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. You will see God's hand move. You will see Him working. You will see Him doing. You will see Him hearing you. Listen, we don't serve God with blind faith. We have a faith that's confirmed every single day by the answers to prayer. I have two challenges for you. And I'm trusting and believing that God will fulfill this challenge. First challenge, I would challenge you to ask the Lord in his will to providentially provide some sort of encouragement, some sort of assurance, some sort of help to you tomorrow. And see if he doesn't answer that prayer. Then in the evening, thank him for his answers. And I have a second challenge. Look back on your life as a believer. Thank the Lord for all the answered prayers that you can think of unless you have written them all down, you won't be able to even scratch the surface. And as you look back and see God's providential answers to prayers in your life, you'll be astounded, you'll be amazed, and you'll be convinced that God answers prayer and this confirms your faith. Complete God's decree, conform your wishes, confirm your faith. There's a fourth purpose. Fourth purpose of prayer is to correct your soul to correct your soul prayer provides a corrective it provides a chastening when necessary god will not be manipulated and god answers according to his will and i want to show you this in several ways first of all it's possible to pray ineffective prayers and the deafening silence of god will correct your soul i'll give you several examples King Saul, who was so far out of the will of God, so unfaithful to the Lord, was about to face hordes of Philistines. 1 Samuel 28, 6 says, Saul asked of Yahweh, but Yahweh did not answer him. Why? Because Saul in no way was delighting in God. In no way was he following God. He wasn't seeking God's glory. Saul was seeking one thing, to save his own skin. With Israel, in Isaiah 59, God says this, beginning in verse 1, "...Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear." For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken a lie, your tongue mother's unrighteousness. Did you catch that? Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. the psalmist says, If I see wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. In other words, if I am aware of unconfessed sin or I have no desire to deal with with a sinful issue in my life, and yet I, I seek God's help in some other matter, the Lord will not hear. And by the way, the Lord here is not the personal covenant name Yahweh. This is Adonai. The master will not hear the slave. If you think that there's somehow no connection whatsoever between seeking to obey and serve the Lord and answered prayer, then the silence of God will serve to correct that mistaken notion. But even if you are seeking the Lord humbly, if you are confessing sin, actively humbly seeking His help in sanctification and obedience, prayer still corrects your soul by reminding you that God answers as He pleases and when He pleases. If we want to be simple about this, there are basically three possible answers to prayer, to prayer requests. Yes, no, and not yet. Those are the three possible answers. And all three are answers to prayer i will give you some examples of yes answers. Nehemiah, who was the assistant to the king of Persia, he had heard that his beloved Jerusalem had the walls burned down again and destroyed, and he was sad in the presence of the king. Nehemiah 2 says, And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? When the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste, and its gates have been consumed by fire, then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it is good for the king, if your servant is good before you, and send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the request was granted immediately in response to Nehemiah's prayer. King David records the result of a prayer in Psalm 40, beginning in verse 1. I hoped earnestly for Yahweh. He inclined to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a high rock. He established my steps. As Jesus was leaving Jericho, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, sitting by the road, heard that Jesus was walking by, and he cried out to Jesus to have mercy on him. Mark 10, beginning of verse 49, records, Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, get up, he's calling for you. And throwing off his outer garment, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered him and said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. Oh, that's what we hope for, isn't it? But God corrects us, and sometimes he says no. In Deuteronomy 3, Moses recounts how he begged God to let him go into the promised land. He begged him. But because Moses had publicly sinned against God in anger, God said no. And Moses gives a public remembrance of this event in Deuteronomy three twenty three. I pleaded with Yahweh at that time saying, Oh Lord, Yahweh, you have begun to show your slave, your greatness and your strong hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. Let me, I pray, cross over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But Yahweh was angry with me on your account. And I love how he throws in on your account. And would not listen to me. And Yahweh said to me, enough, enough. Speak to me no more on this matter. Second Samuel 12 David has had a son by his adulterous union with Bathsheba the child becomes sick and verse 16 says that David sought God about the boy and David fasted and went and spent the night lying on the ground but God refused to save the boy. This was God's discipline on David. Matthew 20, the mother of James and John, fully thinking that Jesus was about to inaugurate the promised kingdom on earth, she came and asked Jesus that her sons could be on his right and his left hand when the kingdom comes. And Jesus said, no, as my father's decision, not mine. Perhaps the most famous example of no in the New Testament is from the Apostle Paul. He explained his own trial in 2 Corinthians 12 because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself. There was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected in weakness. That's a really kind way of saying no, no, no. You're going to walk in my grace. You're going to walk in my power through weakness. And you know how Paul responded? He said, most gladly therefore will I rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. He reveled in the no answer because God would be glorified by bringing him through the trial, not taking him out of it. Then there's examples of not yet. Not yet. Heman, the psalmist, was horribly ill. He was quarantined. He was alone. He was bereft of friend and family. And he wrote Psalm 88, and he cried out in verse 14, Oh, Yahweh, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? That's clearly a a not yet answer. Heman is in heaven. He's with the Lord. The Lord's face will never be hidden from him again. Paul told the Romans in Romans 1.13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may have some fruit among you also. 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians that he was praying, quote, night and day most earnestly that we may see your face. But to that point, the answer was not yet. God always answers prayer. It may be yes, It may be no, it may be not yet. There's another way that prayer corrects your soul. Sometimes God answers prayer, but not for the reason you asked. God had promised that at the right time he would give Israel a king. Deuteronomy 17, God promises a king even before Israel enters the promised land. But the people got impatient. They demanded for the prophet Samuel a king, all for the wrong reasons. They wanted a king like other nations had. That was their motive. And so 1 Samuel 8, they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint a king for us, to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to Yahweh. And here's a surprise. Yahweh said to Samuel, Yeah, listen to him. Listen to him. Give him a king. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And he goes on in verse 9. So now listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. So the people said, we want a king like all the other nations. And God said, okay, I'm going to give you An unrighteous king like all the other nations. And Samuel told him what the king was going to do. He's going to take your sons and conscript them into the military. He's going to take your sons to do his plowing and his harvesting and to manufacture his weapons of war and his chariots. He's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He's going to massively tax the best of your fields and vineyards. He's going to take 10% of all your crops to feed his entourage and his servants. He's going to take the best of your servants and your animals from you. In other words, the wicked king was going to be all about big government, high taxes, and burdening every family. I actually heard a sermon on this called Why God is a Republican. (laughs) God said, sure, have your way. But it was to make Israel hungry for a righteous king. And listen, Samuel told them, 1 Samuel eight eighteen. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. Oh, that's a disciplinary one-two punch in prayer. First, God would answer their prayers, but not for the reasons they wanted. Then when they begged to get out of it, he would say no. Numbers 11 records the people of Israel in the wilderness complaining that they didn't have any meat to eat, even though God was providing miraculous manna every day. And think about this. Don't let this slide by. Food raining from heaven every day. And the people were still complaining. So God told Moses to tell the people to prepare themselves because a feast of meat was on its way. God sent countless quail from the coastal region so many quail Then numbers 1132 says that the man who got the least amount of quail only got 65 baskets full Oh what a feast was coming I and mean, you could their mouths are watering they're getting the fire stoked and they're ready for the barbecue of the ages the Numbers 11.33 says, while the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people and Yahweh struck the people with a very severe plague. So the name of that place was called Kibrath Hata'avah because there they buried the people who had been greedy. I've given you examples of ineffective prayer, shown you that God answers yes, no, and not yet, and that God will even answer prayer but not for the purpose intended by the one praying Prayer teaches you precisely who is the slave and who is the master. That is the purpose of prayer. It corrects your soul. It makes you pray in humility. Cognizant of the will of God. Always asking for God to do His will. But now we turn to the wonder and delight of what it means to be in relationship with God. What does it mean to be in fellowship with God? Purpose is of prayer related to sovereignty, to complete God's decree, to conform your wishes, to confirm your faith, to correct your soul, and our final purpose of prayer is to commune with God, to commune with God. Prayer is the very real interaction of your soul with God himself. Prayer isn't just the vehicle by which God answers your requests. it's much more than that. Prayers, how we offer worship, it's how we offer adoration, it's how we offer praise. The songs that we've sung this morning, the hymns that we sing together, these are prayers unto God in communion with Him. Every type of prayer you pray, whether it's requests or help or adoration or thanksgiving or, or confession of sin, this is the soul in communion and intimacy and union with God. Prayer is the means of deepening your spiritual life, of understanding the Lord more and more. Prayer is the natural response to the Word of God. I read Daniel 9 earlier this morning because Daniel read the prophet Jeremiah and his response was to fall down in prayer. Prayer is our answer. Prayer is our reply to the revelation of God in His Word. And just how intimate, just how close, just how cherished, just how near... Is this communion with God? How close is it? This intimate union with God is so connected to our fellowship and our relationship with God that all three members of the Trinity are involved in your prayers. All three. I'm not going to go down that silly road of those who say we can only pray to God the Father The apostles prayed to Jesus after his ascension into heaven. Jesus told us to pray to him. The Holy Spirit indwells you. You're in constant communion with him. But on a more formal level, on the level of just how close and cherished and near is this communion with God, you commune with God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit on these levels. God the Father is involved in hearing your prayers. He has invited you to call him Abba, Daddy, Father. Hebrews 4 says that the the throne of grace is open to you and you're to be bold, just like a little child is always bold to go to his father and ask for anything. How about the Son of God? It's one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. Hebrews 7.25 says that Christ always lives to make intercession for you that Christ Jesus is praying for you he is your advocate before the father that Jesus Christ physically seated on the throne of God is advocating for you and of course you remember the astounding revelation that the holy spirit is praying for you Romans 8:26 in the same way the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the spirit himself intercedes with us for us rather with groanings too deep for words And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And if you're worried, oh, what if I'm praying outside the will of God? Don't worry, the Holy Spirit will correct that prayer. What sweet fellowship, what sweet communion. That when you pray, God the Father is listening. God the Son is advocating. God the Spirit is interceding, praying for you. He's praying with you according to the will of God. And that is the ultimate understanding of how sovereignty and prayer work together. You might pray Father please heal me of this disease. But the Spirit is praying knowing that the Father's answer is no. The Spirit is praying that you might receive and believe the tremendous peace which surpasses all understanding. And the Spirit prays Father, let this one trust you all the more because you have said no and he still believes. Let him remember from 1 Peter 1 that it is a precious thing to suffer for Christ and still have your faith intact. You might pray, Father, please make my son better. But the Spirit praying in the Father's will says, help him to serve his son, to delight in sacrificially doing things for him and with him rather than just looking for a quick answer. You understand that you have an interpreter for your prayers all the time. The Father is listening. The Son is advocating. The Spirit is interceding, interpreting. What sweet fellowship. What delightful communion. That when you pray, you have the full attention of God. The Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Meaning that on your behalf, the Spirit represents you at a divine level that can't be expressed in words. I want you to imagine this situation. A man is diagnosed with a rare physical condition which threatens to take his life. He's a poor man. He doesn't have access to the best and brightest in medicine who could help him and and he leaves his doctor's office and he, he's destitute, he's hopeless. And he says to himself, only, if only the very best doctors in this field could help me, but that'll never be for me. And so he comes home to his little house and he unlocks the front door and he walks in. And to his surprise, waiting in his living room, is the greatest specialist in the world in this particular field. Also, a a medical school professor who teaches in this field. And also, many other doctors who have successfully treated this rare condition. And they're all sitting there and one of them says, let's all get this figured out. We're not leaving until we have a plan to get you through this. And cost is no object. We'll pay for everything. And not only were they there to help him, but they put their arm around him and they held his hands and they said, we're going to get you through this. How wonderful would that be? And yet, as the one who has come to saving faith in Christ, you have full access at any time to God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Anytime. And whenever you pray, the triune God communes with you, fellowships with you, discusses your situation amongst the three persons, as it were, that perfectly in line, perfectly lined up with the sovereign decree of God, God will answer your prayers in precisely the right fashion, at precisely the right time, in precisely the right way. Uh, To be honest with you, to anyone who thinks that the sovereignty of God and prayer are somehow in competition, you've got it backwards. The sovereignty of God is what makes prayer sweet and delightful. Because it means that your prayers come with guarantees guarantees God shall always do his will, which shall always be better than your will. That is a glorious guarantee. If I didn't believe in the sovereignty of God, I don't know that I even could pray. But the sovereignty of God is what allows us to fall to our knees and to beg Him for the things we know are His will, to seek guidance in the things that we're unsure of and to trust that God the Son is advocating and God the Spirit is interceding. What a glorious truth. I hope that for you, the sovereignty of God is like the, the sentinel that guards your prayers and makes them glorious as you seek our God and seek His will. Amen? Let's pray together. Our sovereign God, you have revealed your will to us. It is your will that we come to faith in Christ. It is your will that we are sanctified and that we obey Christ. It is your will that we gather together. It is your will that husbands love their wives. It is your will that wives submit to and honor their husbands. It is your will that children obey their parents. Oh, we have your will revealed to us all throughout Scripture. And so the pray according to your will is is. Simplistic is opening our Bibles and reading it aloud to you. Lord, I pray for each person here in two ways. First, I pray for the one who has yet to trust Christ, has yet to trust the sovereign work of God to have the Holy Spirit regenerate their hearts. I pray that this would be the day that God's sovereign work, God's singular work, of salvation would occur in the hearts of one who has fooled himself into thinking that because he's in church or does religious things that he is saved. And then his prayers will be heard for the rest of his life and on into eternity. But Lord, my my second prayer is that the knowledge of your sovereignty, far from making us passive and lazy in prayer, would instead set our hearts ablaze to pray all we can, for all we can, unto all we can, Lord, to see your plan furthered, believing you for more than we thought possible because we pray to a sovereign God who uses our prayers as the means by which the redemptive plan of God rolls forward. Use us on our knees. Use our prayers. Use our words unto you for the sake of Christ. Use our words. Use our prayers for the sake of the church. And someday, Lord, as our prayers are pictured in Revelation as beautiful, sweet-smelling incense that go up before you, we see that every prayer will be answered in perfection according to your will. And so let us, as those who believe with all of our hearts the sovereignty of God, fall to our knees all the more because you are sovereign. We worship you and thank you in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.